Good afternoon. It's Friday the 3rd of February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining us by video link, uh, we've got Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire and Vanessa Bailey. Uh, welcome both. Now, we're going to get kicked off here with uh, just a very quick comment on the financial news from yesterday. So let's have a, a quick listen to what Andrew Bailey, from the governor of the Bank of England, said yesterday. Today, we've raised interest rates to 4%. We've all seen very clearly the problems caused by high inflation over the past year. It's our job to get inflation back to 2% and for it to stay there. Low and stable inflation is the foundation of a healthy economy. An economy where people can plan for the future with confidence and money holds its value. We need to be absolutely sure we get inflation down. That's why we've raised rates today. We've raised rates a lot already and I do understand this is hard for many people. But this is the best way we have of bringing inflation down. It's too soon to declare victory, but there are now signs that things are beginning to move in the right direction. Inflation appears to have turned a corner and is starting to fall. We will continue to take the decisions needed to see it through. So we should be deeply impressed with that, no doubt. Uh, now, this is the graphic that the Bank of England pushed out yesterday. And I just want to uh, point at the middle section on the right hand side there. Um, this is what they say inflation is going to do. We expect inflation to fall quickly this year. Uh, so it's gone up very steeply. It's going to come down very steeply. And that's going to solve, Patrick, all our problems. Uh, because, of course, uh, as he said, when inflation comes down, that's the end of it, isn't it? Except it isn't because all inflation is is uh, a representation of how fast prices are rising. Uh, prices aren't going to fall just because inflation falls. Fr prices don't fall because inflation falls. They want inflation around the 2% level. So we're at this level of uh, uh, pain for the long term, really. Yeah, well, the, the best thing to do if you have inflation, Mike, uh, is always to uh, borrow and spend more. Um, this is what governments have done, but no, I'm joking. Uh, this is what governments do, and hence the problem gets progressively worse. We don't see any uh, fun addressing the fundamentals of the economy, the fundamentals of the energy market, all the, the main things that are driving uh, the price of goods and services right across the board. There's nothing coming from government or the Bank of England or anybody else uh, to address those core problems. So the problem will just persist. Right. Same thing in Europe, same thing in the US. Absolutely, uh, but not perhaps quite so bad in Russia and China. But anyway, we'll come on to that some other time, no doubt. Uh, let's move on to the issue of vaccines. And uh, I want to begin just with this job uh, adver advertisement on civil service jobs. Uh, this is for vaccine supply operations lead. It's a job being uh, advertised by the UK Health Security Agency. And the deadline for applications is Tuesday, the 14th of February, 2023. It's a reasonably well-paid job, 49,592 to £62,286 a year. Uh, they say that if you're a non-civil servant applying for the civil service for the first time, uh, you'll come in at that lower rate. Uh, but anyway, let's see what they have to say. They say the Vaccines and Countermeasures Response Department is part of the National Infection Service Directorate. Uh, Many people don't understand that these organizations exist within uh, the 
UK Health Security Agency, but anyway, it goes on. Uh, it is concerned with the procurement and supply of vaccines for the immunization program and the national stockpiles, vaccine agreements and storage and distribution requirements for pandemic flu preparedness and emergency response planning. Uh, this includes the budget management and financial accounting in, these, uh, in relation to these arrangements. Uh, it then says the role of the vaccine supply operations lead is a new post to support the operations providing uh, accurate and timely reports for a range of stakeholders during what is expected to be the UK's largest vaccination programme, which will be delivered at pace and will be a key ministerial priority. The role will be directly responsible for the uh, daily operational management of all COVID-related products, uh, ensuring their timely distribution across the UK, crown dependencies and overseas territories. So uh, in the first paragraph there, we saw that they were talking about pandemic flu preparedness, but now we're talking about COVID-related products. Uh, but they are uh, saying during what, so just put that back on screen if we could, Stephanie, during what is expected to be the UK's largest vaccination programme, which will be delivered at pace and will be a key ministerial priority. Now, it could be that what they've done is simply take the text from a previous uh, advertisement uh, and rehashed it for this. Um, but I wanted to know what they meant by uh, a, the, the UK's largest vaccination programme because it's an expectation. It's an impl an imp the implication is that this, this is something that's going to happen in the future. So I wrote to the uh, media team uh, at the uh, UK Health Security Agency and uh, well, let's just have a look and see what I got back. Uh, so here's uh, Claire Cook. Thanks for your message. I'm now out of, out of the office until Monday the 6th of February. Okay. Then I got Luke, Luke Guinness. Uh, he's currently on per, uh, shared parental leave. Uh, then we've got uh, Emma O'Brien. Uh, she's out of the office until, uh, well, until Monday, in fact. Uh, then we got Rosie Reeves-Webb. Uh, she's out of the office until Monday. Uh, and then we've got Matthew Blom, who's out of the office until Tuesday. So there's apparently nobody uh, manning the uh, health security agency, UK health security agency's media team today. And so we're unlikely to get any kind of response. Uh, but Patrick, uh, the implications of this are that the, the, the issue of mass vaccination hasn't gone away. And this is despite the fact that the uh, JCVI last week basically said they're changing their tack from a mass vaccination program to uh, uh, what, did, what the, the, I can't remember what they called it, but targeted vaccination of various uh, groups. So there seems to be some disparity about uh, what's going on here. Yeah, the key word, the key word, Mike, there is countermeasures. <clears throat> countermeasures. What 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 type of a term is that? Um, this is a military term. Um, it's uh, pertains specifically to bio warfare and uh, bio defense. And if you remember what we uh, revealed um, a couple of weeks ago um, on this program on a Friday, um, how the vaccine rollout is under the aegis of the Pentagon, of the Department of Defense. And that includes the manufacturing of the payload of the vaccine. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, they only fill and finish. They, the, the payload is under direct military supervision. That includes the distribution. And that even includes all of the activities, even of the pharmaceutical companies and also of governments, healthcare, uh, health authorities on the sort of right down to sticking the needle in the arm. This is why there's a liability shield right across the board from the beginning to the end of the entire supply chain. And that brings us to, I don't know if you want to go straight into the next Yeah, uh, go, part, go Mike, for it. Yes, absolutely. So the fundamental question is, you'll bring this graphic up on screen, um, are COVID-19 vaccines biodefense security countermeasures? 
obviously we that was an open question uh, a few months ago and now because of great research by a lot of independent researchers some of whom we we showed their substack uh, articles a couple of weeks ago and i did a nice graphic um to sort of sketch out how this is structured um now we know the answer to that question the answer to that question is yes so the fda the hss the cdc um, are all operating um, on the public side and it's complete regulatory theater okay they don't have any actual power and they don't have any liability uh, because they're it's not under their aegis it's not under their authority and i don't know technically if you can say the same thing um, with regards uh, to the uk or to the ema but certainly in europe it's looking more like that and they've done all sorts of legal loopholes and runarounds in order to avoid um, liability on this issue because it's a uh, it's a bio threat. So therefore, the military uh, has been invoked um, in order to c carry out all of the functions from beginning to end uh, with regards to the research and development, the manufacturing and the deployment of these so-called uh, vaccines, which are military prototypes. OK, this is like if you're a soldier in the army and you go in for a vaccination, they can stick whatever they want in your arm. You have no rights, basically, because what they're, they could be giving you a prototype. They could be testing something on you, uh, an anthrax vaccine because of a threat in the field. Think about the Iraq War, First Gulf War, Second Gulf War. Dr. Merrill Nass from Children's Health Defense talked about Gulf War syndrome and the links to vaccines. So you, we have the same level of rights as a soldier, i.e. no rights. Um, so this is why it's going to be very difficult to challenge this legally. So there's a great article here and uh, one click and it will scroll automatically. It's an embedded video of the article. Um, this is by French journalist uh, Freddie Ponton and he lays out the entire structure of this. So if you want to see how this is structured from the government point of view, um, it's a very interesting <laughs> article indeed. And it really, I think, provides a lot of the, uh, the, the legal structure, the proof that you need to make this article right there in the documents and the key person here donald trump is one of the key people he pressed the button on this he made it a military operation with warp speed a lot of people didn't realize it at the time but now we know it but the key person a bit lower is deborah burks um, she's more of a key person than dr anthony fauci fauci is not the key guy he's the front of house he's theater uh, deborah burks colonel deborah burks um, military commander. Um, she's got a very interesting CV, and she's the one who is in charge of this rollout uh, from a from a Pentagon level or a DoD level. So the details are in this arg uh, article here by Freddie Ponton, and I encourage people to go watch it, look at it, and it's a very interesting it's a very interesting piece indeed. It's also got the schematics here of how the operations are structured uh, from a DoD point of view, from a government point of view, and using BARDA. BARDA is the uh, DARPA equivalent for the HSS or Public Health United States, the uh, Health and Human Services. BARDA is their DARPA arm. Okay. And all of this was being done, emergency use authorizations through BARDA. Okay. So it's a whole new structure for public health. And it, it, the, these are military countermeasures. This is how it's treated legally, this is how it was deployed. Okay, thank you for that, Patrick. Uh, now, uh, many, many people still discussing uh, the issue of uh, digital ID, of course. Uh, now, on the 6th of January, if you want to go back and uh, have a look at the report, we did talk about the 
the Cabinet Office consultation on the issue of, uh, gov of digital ID with respect to the UK government. Uh, this falls under the Digital Economy Act 2017, uh, the Identity Verification Services objective. Uh, and what the UK government announced is that they are launching or they're uh, considering launching what they're describing as the One Login Programme. Uh, so this is the Government Digital Services, part of the Cabinet Office collaborating with departments to build a single sign-on and identity checking solution for all public services uh, called gov.uk One Login. Uh, they say it would report, replace more than 190 existing sign-in routes and 44 separate accounts. Uh, and by using uh, the One Login, uh, citizens would be able to prove their identity online and then reuse it for all access to, to access all government services online via a single account. Uh, now, I just uh, remind everybody, if we put this back on screen, uh, what the uh, government's idea of digital identity is all about. So you have a wallet. Of course, people are very used to the idea of a wallet through cryptocurrencies and so on. Uh, but uh, you have a wallet, and inside that wallet, uh, pieces of personal information are stored, which are described as attributes, and that might be your age. It might be your, uh, what qualifications you've got, it might be whether you've got a driving license, how many points you've got in your driving license, where you're resident, uh, whether you're a pensioner or not, uh, legal name, date of birth, right to reside, all these types of things would be stored on this. Uh, so uh, you know, this is part and parcel of the development of a digital IT system uh, UK-wide. So let's just put the uh, Cabinet Office uh, uh, consultation document back on screen. The URL for that is surveys.domains.gov.uk slash s slash cozd81. Uh, and uh, well, I, th I believe the consultation ends at the end of this month or early in March. Uh, so I uh, would suggest that as many people as possible uh, get involved in that. Um, okay, so uh, Patrick, let's uh, come back onto the issue of uh, journalism and censorship and uh, and so on. Yeah, there's a disturbing development here, and uh, this was reported and, and explained really well by a United States constitutional law attorney, the attorney Jonathan Turley, uh, and this is on his blog here. The headline says it all, Mike. Um, objectivity has got to go. News leaders, i.e. heads of mainstream media outlets, have gotten together uh, recently at uh, a conclave and calling for an end to objective journalism. I know this sounds a bit extreme and you're probably thinking, hey, that's a bit hyperbolic, uh, the headline. Is that really what they said? Unfortunately, I'm going to say yes, this is exactly what they're saying right now. And Turley lays it out beautifully. Um, but he, he describes this situation here. Former executive editor for The Washington Post, Leonard Downey Jr., and former CBS News president Andrew Hayward have released the results of their interviews with over 75 media leaders and concluded that object is now considered reactionary and even harmful, according to these heads of mainstream media outlets. Emilio Gar Garcia Ruiz, editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, said it plainly, objectivity has got to go. Mind you, you're probably thinking, well, that's San Francisco. They're a little bit extreme. Um, on a good day. Um, no, this goes really deep and to many of the brands that we uh, know very well in mainstream media. And while Bob Woodward, he of Watergate fame, uh, he's a you know highly decorated journalist, he, he and others have finally admitted, um, they finally admitted here um, that the Russian collusion coverage lacked objectivity and resulted in false reporting. That's an understatement. But media figures are still pushing uh, harder against objectivity as a core uh, value in journalism. 
and um, goes on. We've been discussing the rise of advocacy journalism. You could say that's activism journalism. So this is uh, activists or partisans within major mainstream media outlets. And you use The Guardian, The New York Times, um, The Washington Post, CNN, the whole gambit, even the BBC. Um, so this is now seeped into journalism schools. This is what's being taught is activist German journalism, advocacy journalism. I would argue, Mike, this is part of the post-truth world that yeah. uh, these same people were decrying so loudly, remember, a couple of years ago. But here's where the, the real meat of this story is. Columbia University is the top journalistic school in America. That's the gold standard for journalism schools. So Columbia Journalism Dean and New Yorker writer Steve Cole uh, decried how the First Amendment, the right to freedom of speech, <clears throat> is being weaponized to protect disinformation. Very dangerous idea they're putting across here. Um, in an interview with the Stanford Daily, Stanford journalism professor Ted Glasser insisted that journalism needs to be free from itself, from this notion of objectivity to develop a sense of social justice. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, Mike. And uh, just before I go to the next quote, do you have any comment on this? Because when I read this, it's just, to me, absolutely extraordinary. Well, it seems to me we've gone quite, uh, quite far down that road already uh, with the mainstream press effectively being bought off by, by governments. We've seen that, uh, this sort of activist, this uh, activist journalism right the way through the uh, coronavirus last two years. Uh, we've seen it. We saw it with with Syria. We've seen it. We, we've seen you know the likes of BBC Media Action and Thomson Reuters Foundation actually going into other countries and training up journalists in order to pursue uh, a particular political goal. Uh, so we've seen a lot of that already. At the same time, though, we have still seen some uh, objective journalism over the last few years. Um, uh, but clearly, that's to be stamped out. It looks like it. It looks like that's being pushed out. I'll also argue the entirety of the Ukraine coverage for the last year could be under the banner of activist journalism. The activism being, uh, let's keep the war going as long as possible. So, I mean, I don't, there's not, there's not, it can't get any worse than this. And for them well, to be coming out and saying this outright, it's, it, it should it should really make people uh, step back and, and really look hard at this. Yeah, right. So look, just before you move on with this, Patrick, I'd very much like to get Vanessa's thoughts on it, if you have any. Um, yeah, I mean, I find it quite interesting, as you said, Mike, and perhaps just concurred. I mean, this has been going on for some time. Objectivity, for me, is a little bit of a red herring um, because journalists in mainstream media haven't demonstrated any objectivity <laughs> For a very, very long time, because effectively, as we know, their narratives are being managed. So, I mean, this is the first time I've seen this. Um, I, I guess my mind is worrying a little bit as to what it's trying to achieve, because, of course, it's not going to penalize mainstream journalists. It's going to be used as a weapon against those that are challenging the narrative. So I, I, I'm trying to figure out in my mind how it's going to be used, maybe uh, one of you has an immediate idea on that. I haven't actually processed it yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I will add to what Vanessa says. That's an interesting point Vanessa has brought up. How is this going to be, how is this new tact by the mainstream media professionals going to be used um, to, you know, isolate, to marginalize, to, you know, call 
uh, dangerous disinformation purveyors like bloggers and independent journalists and things like that. And I think what we're seeing is the, the elevation of the profession of journalism. This is what Glenn Greenwald said beautifully a couple of weeks ago in his program, System Update, uh, elevated to this priestly caste. In other words, you won't get the protections that the law offers journalists or journalism or free press unless you belong to a trusted news organization or you're affiliated with one of these institutions or you're state funded uh, in terms of media, i.e., you know, the uh, Trusted News Initiative, uh, BB, these various BBC and other uh, quangos. That have and, spun and Patrick, off we've, we've got to make yeah. the point that that is, that is a fundamental tenet of the online safety bill. That is right there in the legislation as it's drafted at the moment. So to, you know, so they're, they're all kind of festooning around like they've got these principles um, for these high, highly falluting uh, positions at The Guardian and whatnot, but they don't have any principles at all. As you can see, they're basically undermining the whole concept of the fourth estate. This is dangerous because when you take objectivity out, the, the reason is, and I think Mike and Vanessa, you might agree or disagree, I think this is a way of them addressing the competition in the information space, because I will, you know, admittedly, a lot of independent journalists are uh, gonzo journalists. They're actually put themselves inserted into the story, um, and they're readdressing a overall imbalance in coverage. I.e., if 99% of the entire media sphere is reporting Syria, for instance, or Ukraine, for instance, one way, or COVID one way, or vaccines one way, then the alternative media. The, the, the entirety of our coverage at the UK column or the uh, the 21st Century Wire or another outlet or gray zone or something um, is going to be uh, covering it in s such a way to readdress that giant imbalance in media coverage. And then the mainstream will look at us and attack us and say, your your coverage is not objective. You know, you need to belong to a, um, a, a press regulator or something uh, in order to cover both sides. And so the both sides issue, they will weaponize and point at independent outlets, demand that they be regulated, but the mainstream at that level, they don't have to do the both sides anymore. They can pursue advocacy journalism. That's, that's my sort of reading of it, Mike. I don't know if you agree or not. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Uh, but anyway, move on to the next bit, Patrick. Okay, um, I just, We'll talk about the Twitter files, and the timing of this is interesting. Um, just this week, um, thank you to uh, Elon the Compassionate, the new monarch uh, in San Francisco in charge of this platform. My Twitter account was uh, reinstated um, this past week. So uh, quite amazing, and uh, I didn't realize um, it happened uh, until I logged in by accident one day and saw it there. It had been frozen for a month. Um, in stasis, so it was visible, but now I can use it and interact with it. I can post and use my uh, my contacts and everything like that. So that's uh, an interesting development, and Pepe Escobar and others, uh, their accounts appeared on the same day um, as mine. So there's a whole litany of uh, uh, independent journalists that have uh, appeared. So this brings us to the Twitter files. Um, the timing of this was interesting, was also um, at the same time a new trove of documents has come out in the Twitter files here. This is Matt Taibbi. This is his substack, The Racket. And the headline is, move over Jason Blair, uh, meet Hamilton 68, the new king of media fraud. And so this is the group Hamilton 68. We reported on it in the UK column a couple of years ago. 
when this popped up, this dashboard of supposed Russian interference, uh, uh, media people, Twitter accounts, um, and things like that. These are, uh, in this case, Russian bots, a list of Russian bot accounts that uh, Hamilton 68 run here by uh, uh, Clint Watts. He's a former FBI investigator who set himself up as a Russian disinformation expert, attracted a lot of funding and ran this. This is funded by the German Marshall Fund. Okay, so this is money that usually goes to Europe uh, and also goes into media to, to buy and run media outlets, a bit of a quango of sorts funded by the U.S. State Department, and then the money flows around. And so, so he was lobbying Twitter. He was lobbying uh, probably Facebook and LinkedIn, probably all of them, with this blacklist. And it's a massive blacklist constantly being updated. It's got tweets. It's the same sort of thing that disinformation labs, the DFR labs at Atlantic Council was doing and some of these other people. And lo and behold, um, uh, I was contacted by Matt Taibbi last week. And uh, yeah, I was actually in the Hamilton 68 dashboard. Um, so you can see here, we'll bring that up. There's at 21 wire. Um, so did this have to do with my deplatforming? Well, it might have contributed. Um, because if I'm on this list, I'm probably on some other lists as well. And so these people were lobbying directly pressuring Silicon Valley firms to basically either shadow ban, censor, or just totally deplatform all of these accounts. So I even had a blue check mark. I've got a blue badge. But according to this government quango run by a former FBI agent, um, I'm a Russian bot, even though I had at the time 92 something thousand followers. Um, so it's pretty incredible. So I, was, I wasn't surprised to find this out. And uh, I, I'm going to say Matt Taibbi's done a great job, as, as have some of the other journalists, to really kind of expose what re was really going on and is going on behind the scenes in Silicon Valley. This problem is solved at Twitter temporarily, maybe. And it goes really deep. Even the 77th Brigade operatives were at one point embedded in, uh, in inside Twitter. Um, at least one uh, example that we know of in many other intelligence agencies, FBI, former, former FBI, former CIA, NSA, spooks working in Twitter uh, have direct access to the content moderation dashboards, sharing the information with other Silicon Valley companies, as was revealed in the U.S. Senate hearings, i.e. a common dashboard for Google, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook for problem accounts. So once you're in the system, then you know the shadow banning can happen right across all platforms. Though, uh, although Taibbi didn't uh, get into that part of it, he might do later. But what has been revealed has been very, very educational to see how corrupt and toxic this whole system um, is behind the scenes. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it back to you and Vanessa for comment. But um, this is a huge, huge problem, and these these lists are everywhere and we've had experience with this for years and now we're seeing the final you know proof of how it was used uh, yeah indeed uh, well i don't really know what to add to that patrick uh you know that, that it's it's been uh, absolutely clear that there's been something uh, at work in the background within twitter facebook and the other platforms it's nice that that we're starting to get some uh, visibility of what the mechanism actually has to be has been um, not surprising that the types of uh, uh, people that we've been uh, sort of highlighting, 77th Brigade and others, over the last number of uh, years uh, that are in and around this whole censorship regime are actually in there. 
active. And we've got to remember, of course, the British government claims and 77 Brigade claim they only work abroad. Well, they may work abroad, but they're certainly directing a lot of their activity back at people within the United Kingdom, uh, as well as other parts of the world. So, so you know, we are clearly viewed as being uh, the enemy. Uh, and by we, I mean, not just people that are offering alternatives to the mainstream narratives, but actually the general public and anybody that's using social media. And Peter Hitchens was targeted, David Davis. So yeah. 77 Brigade are, you know, targeting elected officials and journalists, yeah. mainline journalists in the UK. That's what we found out uh, yes. this this past weekend with the Big Brother Watch report. So, I mean, you know, the problem is 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 massive and it continues to this day. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the Ministry of Truth then. Yeah, and so what what are we looking at here? We're looking at a kind of unofficial Ministry of Truth, right? This is a network of institutions. This is government. This is big tech. These are academic working groups, quangos, uh, you know, NGOs like the Hamilton 68, um, effectively functioning like a Ministry of Truth. And the mainstream media is part of this as well because they get the blacklists, okay? Then they, they, they're talking to people like the Huffington Post, okay, in the U.K., and then they go and they run to social media and saying, are you are you allowing these people to have these extremists with these extremist views to, to be on your platform? You're allowing them to tweet and we're going to run a story on this. You better do something about it. Um, and so lo and behold, this is when accounts get flagged, shadow banned and uh, and deleted in some cases. So this is and they do this for live events as well. They go to the venues. It's the same thing. The NGOs working with the press, sharing the blacklists go to get the venue shut down. We've all had experience with that same thing. So this is an incredible uh, you know, combination. So back to this story here, very, very important story. And uh, we'll have the, uh, the subject of this story in a short video right now. So the feds are adapting AI used to, used to track and silence ISIS accounts on social media. And they're now using it to combat American dissonant voices online on subjects like vaccines on u.s elections on ukraine syria etc as well so this is what's happening and we have personal experience with this and so just do this a quick quote this is really an embodiment of a whole of society censorship framework i use the term ministry of truth that departments like the department of homeland security uh, talked about as being their utopian vision for censorship just a few years ago says mike benz um, we see it now in true now truly in fruition. So no no exaggeration there. And I believe um, we have the video here, Mike Benz, who, in my opinion, is doing such important work right now um, in the United States on this very topic. He, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, listen to what he he explains it beautifully in this in this short uh, statement. Course Correct is basically a digital dashboard, a dynamic digital dashboard that the federal government is funding to university disinformation labs to create, to give to journalists and fact checkers so that they can more effectively flag information to censor to the technology companies. So you basically have four different categories of institutions here in cahoots for domestic censorship. You have the federal government who's providing the money you have the universities who are being onboarded as a sort of mercenary science army to create censorship technology tools. 
those technology tools for censorship are then being given to like-minded, political like-minded journalists and fact-checkers who then, in, who then take this AI technology that was funded by the government and created by the universities and apply it to censor their political opponents or, their, or opponents on social policy issues to the tech platforms. So this is really an embodiment of the whole of society censorship framework that departments like, like DHS uh, talked about as being their utopian vision for censorship only a few years ago. We see it now truly in fruition. So, so that lays it out, Mike, and, uh, and myself, you, uh, Vanessa as well. You know, the hit piece in The Guardian about the white helmets by Olivia Solon, and they're pulling in quotes from people like Kate Starbird, who's an associate professor at the University of Washington. She's at the beginning of this whole story. She's at the core of this whole story, mapping what they call disinformation online with the fancy heat maps. What are they mapping? They're mapping dissident opinions. They're mapping people's views and opinions. They're doxing them. Then they're drawing up lists and then they're sharing those and those are being used to censor. This is, and this is done with public money, but it's done under the guise of fighting disinformation, which was a trendy term when Trump got elected, attracted a lot of money and funding and politically universities were more than happy to fund this type of stuff using AI now to automate this process. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and that's, it's about attacking dissent. It's not about attacking quote disinformation because a lot of the claims they make in their, their, their academic reports and at their conferences are not factual. They're just smearing uh, independent journalists and bloggers and calling them Russian agents and things like that. So sloppy and so reckless. And now the whole thing's being exposed. And again, thank you to uh, you know Twitter, the new Twitter management and ownership for really exposing how, how this actually works and putting it into the public view. It's yeah. invaluable. Just bring up the schematic, Mike, just so people know. This is, uh, this is how the system works. You've got four major actors. It's the government working with, quote, civil society. Those are universities, NGOs, and activists, like we just said, like this disinformation labs at University of Washington or Harvard or wherever. Then you have news media and fact checkers, okay? These are politically like-minded partisans. They think as one, and then they uh, put pressure on the tech platforms, the private sector. So those are four actors in this new ministry of truth system, and they work hand in glove Right, right around, and it's an absolute circle that functions like a, a wheel of censorship to crush freedom of expression, free press, and freedom of speech, ultimately. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumns.org. There are options uh, to help us out there. You could pick something up at the UK column shop, but please do share the material that you find uh, on the various platforms. and. Uh, uh, lots of uh, UK column content going out. Uh, Kenny hard at work distributing that across many platforms at the moment. So do please share it. And I'm just going to reinforce that point once again with this uh, message from Les. Uh, sorry for uh, choosing you again, Les. But uh, uh, you know, see 40 cities, more madness, and and, and uh, uh, a video sent to us. Uh, we do welcome this type of material, uh, but we would just urge everybody that if you are sending us something. Uh, just have a look on the UK column website. And if you see that we've covered that, we would appreciate it if you would also share the material. Uh, if you do a search on the UK column website for uh, that and share that as well, that would be fantastic. 
Uh, and then I just want to also mention, uh, Vanessa, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, there's Stop the War seems to have come out of the woodwork a little bit, uh, and they've decided they want to stop the war in Ukraine. So there's a national demonstration taking place. It's uh, February the 25th, 2023, begins at midday uh, outside BBC Broadcasting House in Portland Place in London. Uh, I don't know if you've got any comment to make on that. No, I mean, any any movement that is working towards stopping um, <clears throat> NATO build up in Ukraine, great. I would slightly question the timing with a, a, a great amount of the weapons coming into Ukraine getting siphoned into Africa in preparation for a potential new front there. So it's sort of interesting um, that perhaps as Ukraine is being recognized by the latest RAND report as a defeat for NATO, effectively, it doesn't say that exactly, but it, but it kind of intimates it, um, that suddenly we see organizations like Stop the War coming out. But thought, I'm cynical. Yeah. Yes, yes, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Now look, uh, you have obviously been in, but not obviously, you've been in Iran for the last two weeks, it's just why you haven't been on the UK Column News. Uh, we did have a report uh, from you from Iran uh, two weeks ago, uh, but uh, I wanted to start off this segment uh, just with a short excerpt from uh, one of the reports on Channel 4 News last night talking about Iran, and that leads into some uh, stuff that you've got for us. So let's begin by having a quick look at this. Every Friday for months now, this remote city has seen huge crowds turn out, protesting against Iran's regime. Elsewhere in the country, the movement sparked by the death in custody of a young woman arrested for not wearing her headscarf correctly has slowed in the face of a brutal response. In Zahidan, they're still going, but locals say the crackdown is intensifying. One woman sent us a message describing the atmosphere. At every junction, there are strict checkpoints. There are many different vehicles patrolling the streets, monitoring the situation. In the last month, innocent people have been beaten up and arrested. They want to terrorize the protesters and cause fear. But despite this, people take part in the Friday protests and are determined to carry on. Security forces killed around 100 people on a single day in Zahidan last September. The protests began in solidarity with others elsewhere in Iran, but also focused on the alleged rape of a teenage girl by a local police commander. As the dead bodies piled up, the massacre became known as Bloody Friday. So that's just a short excerpt. Vanessa, you got any thoughts on that? No, I mean, it's obviously um, difficult to keep up with the uh, tsunami of information that's being poured out by not only Western media outlets like Channel 4 or BBC, but also the Gulf-funded, uh, the Western-funded, like BBC Farsi, like a huge number of uh, media channels that are publishing in Farsi to deliberately mislead and misinform um, the Iranian uh, people, and that was pointed out to me during my two-week trip. I also have to make clear that um, I was in Iran for two weeks. I traveled uh, from, I spent some time in Tehran. I then went to Isfahan, to Shiraz, 
um, I didn't see uh, any sign of uh, protests uh, whatsoever during my time. Um, I saw, as I think my video showed, um, a degree, a, a high degree of women walking around uh, without even a headscarf on, some wearing kind of uh, hippie beatnik hats, or some semi-scarved, uh, some, of course, wearing the chador and wearing uh, the hijab. Um, but that all of uh, the women were mingling together in the various bazaars, in the various uh, streets and shopping malls that I visited, um, which, which sort of slightly contradicts the, the, the hyperbole that's being put out by uh, the likes of the BBC, uh, Channel 4 and all the various other CNNs and so on. And that's kind of what I wanted to go through today because, yes, you know, targeting individual stories like these um, is difficult on an ongoing basis, just as it was difficult at the beginning of the um, war against Syria to, to actually keep up with the level of um, storytelling that has been going on. But what I wanted to do today is to demonstrate how many of these stories, when they're actually investigated, are proven um, to be false. So first of all, uh, someone uh, sent me yesterday this story recently in from the BBC, Iran dancing couple given 10-year jail sentence. Now, immediately when you read the title, of course, the, the Iran, in inverted commas, dancing couple are, are presented um, as nothing more than people who are uh, objecting to uh, the, the uh, Iranian government policies. But the reality is, when I spoke to Setara Sadiqi, who I've already interviewed, she told me that as far as she knew, the jail sentence was five years. She's checking for me at the moment whether that has been increased. Um, <clears throat> well, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I'll just, well, just sorry, Vanessa, sorry to interrupt. I'll just mention it's common these days, and it's one of the things that I find particularly disingenuous, it's common these days for the mainstream press if you've got multiple people involved in a in some kind of legal uh, criminality, and then there's a prison sentence, they just add up all the numbers. So the two people, they're two dancers, probably got five mm. years each, and that becomes a ten-year jail sentence. Good point. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, of course, not mentioned in the BBC article at all. People can go and check it for themselves is the fact um, that uh, this couple had established an Instagram account from which they, they had, I think, around a million followers, and they were instigating protests and calling for, for violence against uh, the government, which in, in any country would be deemed um, as a criminal offence. Um, now, I recommend that everybody goes to Grey Zone and reads the article by Satara Sadiqi and Christopher Reaver, uh, who have set up the uh, Tales Twice Told podcast, which you can find on YouTube. But this article goes into some depth uh, into the fake stories that are circulating around Iran. And I have to say, talking about Twitter, when I started sharing this and sharing some of the fake stories out of it, um, I was immediately mobbed on Twitter by what I can describe as the typical 
kind of Syria NAFO trolls that have been attacking, NAFO trolls have been attacking on uh, Ukraine information. Um, and I had a very similar um, Twitter storm at the minute that I started questioning the stories that are being put out on social media and in um, mainstream media. So let's have a look at a couple of those stories. Again, I would recommend everybody goes and reads the article because it's very um, revealing. So first of all, um, people will probably remember the story of Elnaz uh, Rakabi, who had been competing in South Korea. <clears throat> she was a climber um, and her hijab fell off uh, during the competition. And that then um, instigated an entire um, sort of melee of reports claiming that she had disappeared post the competition that she had been arrested because she was competing um, without head covering. <clears throat> and of course, um, the BBC jumped on it. This was one headline that they put out in December 2022, the family home of the Iranian climber demolished. Now, in the article itself, they go into greater detail. Um, but let's have a look at Rohala Rezvi, a, a, an activist and journalist that I know very well inside Iran who immediately put out a statement saying, well, it wasn't a family home, it was a resort. It wasn't her actual property, but her brother's property. It was not destroyed for any political reason, but due to illegal construction in the first place. And the destruction took place on the 11th of June, 2022. So months before the recent events and not related to the events at all. Then let's have a look at Justin Trudeau and a number of other um, <clears throat> high-profile personalities like Elijah Wood, the actor, putting out the statement that Canada denounces the Iranian regime's barbaric decision to impose the death penalty on nearly 15,000 protesters. These brave Iranians were fighting for their human rights and we continue to stand united in support of them and united against the regime's heinous actions. No mention, of course, of Canada's heinous actions during um, COVID and post-COVID. Um, but let's look at where this story actually originated. So Omid Memarian, outrageous after killing hundreds of protesters on the streets and violent crackdown, MPs in Iran called the protesters Muharreb. As Sitara and Chris will explain in the article, Muharreb actually stands for violent thugs, loosely translated, and actually applies to the ISIS um, attacks that took place in Shiraz um, in October. So this tweet, I think, was put out on November the 6th, so about 10 days um, after the attack on Shah al-Shiraz shrine in Shiraz, so it was re clearly related to ISIS. Um, both of these commentators, by the way, have uh, strong ties to the US State Department. They are not based inside Iran, although their tweets do give the impression that they are inside Iran. And Karim uh, Sajjadpour, in the last eight weeks, Iran's regime has killed over 300 protesters, imprisoned nearly 15,000, threatened to execute hundreds more, yet Iran's women's persist. Now, in the article, this story is completely discredited. Evidence is given to, to counter what they were putting out. And as I say, both figures um, are connected to the US State Department. Then let's have a look at this very emotional tweet that came out in September 2022. The blood of all these 
innocent young women is on the hands of every man and woman that voted for and continue to support the mass murderer Ibrahim Raisi and the IRGC, uh, Basij Militia Thugs. And then uh, the caption at the bottom, saddest thing I've ever seen in my life, a father who promised his daughter he will dance at her wedding now dancing at her grave after she was killed by Iranian regime in the protests. Very emotional messaging here, but let's have a look at what it really is. This man is an actor I personally know, put out by, I think this is an Azerbaijan uh, account. It's an Azerbaijan drama. He gives you the YouTube link. Um, and this scene is from a famous TV drama, Atta Otragi, Hearth of the Father, aired four years ago. Meanwhile, um, I interviewed in Shiraz the mother of one of the young men that was killed in the Shah al Shiraz um, massacre, where I think 15 were killed. Um, many more were injured when three uh, non Iranian nationals um, with the organization ISIS uh, opened fire on pilgrims at the shrine uh, in Shiraz. And a note that I want to make here is that when um, the US State Department and the UK government heard of this massacre, they didn't put out a statement. What did they do in reality? They then uh, amplified the Massa Armini um, story rather than, than, than actually focusing in on the, the, the genuine destabilization project that is going on inside Iran, of course funded uh, and orchestrated um, by the West, by Israel. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, what I actually want to show here is very much how, um, the, how Israel is orchestrating some of the destabilization in Iran, not only directly through Mossad operatives, which is a well-known fact inside Iran, everyone will talk to you about that, um, but also through the MEK, through ISIS, through any number of um, methods to actually carry out attacks against Iranians, uh, Iranian high-profile figures, scientists, academics. We know that assassinations have been carried out by so-called uh, Mossad agents. But let's have a look at this. So I, I want to show the progress um, of an event uh, and of relations between Azerbaijan and Iran, when it is effectively, in in my view, and and it is clearly shown that that Israel has a hand um, in this sequence of events. So, in December uh, 2022, Azerbaijan was putting out statements that it will not allow Israel to attack Iran from its soil. Um, at the same time, in January, so on January the 11th, 2023, Israel, by the way, is the primary weapon supplier to the Azerbaijan regime that has been carrying out continuous war crimes against uh, Armenian territory and against Armenian military on Armenian territory. So not Armenian military that has entered Azerbaijan territory, but actually attacking Armenian territory. Now, if Azerbaijan get control of Armenian territory, that puts effectively Israel by proxy on the border with Iran. So that is the importance of Azerbaijan and the war against Armenia to Israel. 
So in January, Azerbaijan appoints first ambassador to Israel amid tensions with Iran. Remember previously in December, Azerbaijan was saying it would not allow attacks against Iran from its soil. And then while I was actually in Iran on January the 27th, there was a shooting at the Azerbaijan embassy in Tehran, which uh, spikes tensions. All of these reports, by the way, came from the cradle media, if people want to check them out. Um, now, the, uh, the attack was apparently the relative, sorry, the husband of a wife who had allegedly been detained at the Azerbaijani embassy and who decided to take justice into his own hands and killed the head of security and injured two other security guards uh, in the attack. Then we get to Azerbaijan, uh, literally a few days later, blasts Iran for opposing international obligations days after the embassy attack. So what, I'm, what we're seeing here, we're going from in December last year, Azerbaijan saying that it will not allow Israel to attack Iran from its territory to now Azerbaijan blasts Iran for opposing international obligations. And then suddenly Azerbaijani security forces arrest 39 linked to Iranian espionage network in Azerbaijan. At the same time, of course, an attack is carried out on January the 30th, 2023 against an Isfahan um, Iranian weapons factory um, the actual protection on the roof of uh, the ammunition factory protected it from the three drone strike. And I believe two of the drones were actually uh, intercepted. But this is a direct attack. Um, I don't believe Israel has claimed a responsibility for it yet, but there have been statements in Israeli media, particularly from the defense ministry, that suggests um, that they are responsible and at the same time, of course, um, an Iranian food truck convoy, and there is video showing that there were no weapons contained in that convoy, um, were hit in unidentified drone strikes on the Syrian-Iraqi border. And again, um, the uh, suspicion is that Israel is involved in that attack. And I'm sorry, just going back to the uh, drone attack in Isfahan, according to the Wall Street Journal, I believe, um, uh, Israel uh, has taken responsibility, but according to later reports, um, it is also believed that uh, Kurdish separatists are um, working in cahoots with Israel to um, bring weapons into Iran that are then being supplied to the violent protesters. So I think my point is here, Mike, I think, you know, we're back, we have to be back on red alert for um, <clears throat> a severe amplification of propaganda against the Iranian government. I'm certainly not denying that there are legitimate concerns from legitimate women's rights activists in Iran, some of whom I met with and interviewed. Um, but the, 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 the sort of superimposing of, of Western drama, hyperbole, uh, and propaganda designed, of course, to, to whip up the frenzy amongst uh, the protesters is something that we should all be very aware of. We've seen it in Ukraine. We've seen it previously in Syria. We've seen it over COVID. And we are definitely now seeing it in Iran. And of course, we have to bear in mind the importance of Iran to the entire non-aligned axis. Syria is reliant upon Iran um, for oil supply while the US is occupying 
oil, Syrian oil resources in the northeast. Uh, Iran has been responsible for enabling Hashad al-Shabi in Iraq to battle ISIS and for the Syrian Arab army and Hezbollah to do the same uh, anti-terrorism um, uh, warfare in Syria. And of course, it is supporting Palestine against uh, an increasingly far-right extremist um, Israeli regime. Okay, thank you. So, so just in a nutshell then, uh, your assessment is that, that uh, there are definite parallels between what's going on in Iran at the moment and what happened in Syria pre-2011? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, maybe we'll discuss that a little bit more in extra. Now, let's move on to Ukraine then. And, uh, well, we're going to begin with uh, Tobias Elwood, uh, of course, chair of the Select Defence Committee. He's an MP. Uh, and, of course, as we know, he's also a uh, reservist, reservist lieutenant colonel in 77 Brigade. Uh, let's see what he was saying on uh, the end of last week. Uh, we are now at war in Europe. Uh, we need to move to war footing. We're involved in that. We have mobilized a procurement process. We're gifting equipment to Ukraine. We need to face Russia directly, then leaving Ukraine to do all the work. Now, of course, there are mouthpieces like Tobias Elwood uh, in the UK and Europe and in the United States. Uh, but as we know, there's, there's still a lot of uh, uh, diplomatic toing and froing about to what degree is the support going to be direct in Ukraine. But nonetheless, it's pretty clear that the West, what the West has been doing. We've been reporting on it for, for the, the last year. Uh, but uh, the Russians being more uh, open about their position on this. So let's just have a brief look at what the Russians are saying. Uh, so Sergei Lavrov here, uh, whatever our Western partners say, However, they try to justify their supplies of weapons to Ukraine, including the, the notorious slogans such as weapon supplies pave the way to peace. Everybody understands what's really going on very well. For quite a long time, NATO has been directly involved in the hybrid war against Russia. And this is reflected in the hot dimensions of the Kiev regime's actions. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, we see how NATO's entire military infrastructure is working against Russia. We see how NATO's entire intelligence infrastructure, including reconnaissance, aviation and satellite groupings, are working in the interests of Ukraine in a 24-7 mode. Uh, and Anatoly Antonov, uh, the political circles in Washington uh, do not hide the goal of the war on the Ukrainian territory, and my tongue did not slip, to inflict a strategic defeat on Russia, to exhaust and to wear down our country. Uh, they want to drive a wedge between us and the former Soviet republics. They threaten them with sanctions. They persuade them that all cooperation with us must be stopped and all ties must be cut. Uh, the Russophobes have decided to cut Russia's name from the political map of the world. These ideas are not propaganda slogans and are not a figure of speech. This is indeed a real situation in our relations. So, uh, Patrick, uh, to bring you back, this is uh, the Russians becoming much more open about their, their position on this. Uh, that they absolutely view this as a direct conflict with NATO. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, there's plenty, there's plenty of evidence to suggest this. You know, not just on the uh, the geopolitical propaganda front, on the economic front, of course, on the military front as well. So, and it, that this is why our politicians are uh, working at overtime. This is why the media is working overtime to make us believe in the UK or in the EU, or in America, but especially here in Europe, that we're at war with Russia, that we are, they, they've told the public, the electorate, de facto, you are at war with Russia. Get on board with the war effort, and whatever that is. If that's the information war effort, 
That's the economic war effort. And tighten your belt because it's all for a good cause. It's to uh, keep the Russians at bay, et cetera. So I, th I think I think over time, and again, the uh, you know, as Vanessa mentioned, the non-aligned countries um, who are becoming increasingly aligned as a result of all of this bifurcation in the global uh, uh, geopolitical and economic world, um, I think I think they're they're going to be able to notice this, and it's going to be talked about more and publicized more, and this idea is going to come out, especially from Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, I'd keep a close eye on just in general, because they're being used as cannon fodder. So you're, you're going to hear the most sanity, outbreaks of sanity happen um, along the Eastern European uh, part of the EU. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the economic situation and uh, the EU's response to Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Sure, sure. The first thing, let's just point out, just, just get this out of the way first, Mike. Um, the Biden's Inflation Reduction Act has not reduced inflation. It's increased inflation. It's about it's a bailout for all the green energy boondoggle projects to subsidize all of this side of the energy sector in hopes that it will also bring the price down. And it's done the opposite. It's driven the price up of green energy and just in energy in general and created instability on the grids uh, during a very cold winter, which we'll show in a minute here. But let's just rebrand that headline here, um, just so people uh, know. Um, the EU's, we'll re refashion that headline, the EU's response to their own failed green policies and suicidal anti-Russian sanctions. Okay, that's really what it is. So they're wanting, Ursula von der Leyen, Brussels are wanting to be seen to be doing something. So they look over at the United States, this big symbolic, move the Inflation Reduction Act, a total failure, helping to bankrupt the government more. Um, but here, this is what they're saying. The EU has announced plans to reduce restrictions on tax credits for renewable energy projects in response to Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act, following mounting public pressure to expand its climate policy, following the introduction of the new law in the Europe, European Commission, uh, has stated uh, that it aims to loosen state and aid, aid rules to encourage greater investment uh, in production facilities in the green energy industry. Whether any of that adds up economically, Mike, or makes sense, or whether these are giant subsidies in order to kickstart an industry that needs to be basically propped up forever, um, you know, that that's up for uh, people to work out for themselves. But that's the end result. This is what happened in America. And the caveat here, however, this kind of major policy shift requires broad support from its 27 member states uh, which often slows down the introduction of new laws. So they're, 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 they're decrying democracy, what little democracy there is in the EU. You can see it's seen as an obstacle. It's seen as a hurdle to what the Germans or what the Nazis called Gleichschalten, which is a total uniformity of policy and thought right across the board. And isn't that what uh, the European Union is is all about under the Ursula von der Leyen regime? Uh, yeah, it does look like that's the case, Mike. So, um, you know, in terms of uh, how this is going to affect our prices in Britain, um, uh, in terms of energy, electricity, gas, um, I don't necessarily think this is good news, quite frankly, um, because they can't scare up energy out of thin air. They, the, all they can do is try to promote things. They're incentivizing bad behavior. Wind and solar do not perform, especially during the winter. And so instead of penalizing them and going for invest in other things that make more sense, like coal, like natural gas, or to open up the Nord Stream pipeline, no, they're subsidizing the one side of the energy sector that consistently underperforms. And even when they're down, they're still getting the subsidies to the wind industry, 
It's unbelievable. And I, I think the same thing has happened in Britain as well, Mike. Yes. Uh, well, let's bring the Daily Mail on screen and uh, General Sir Richard Barnes. Now, before you comment on this, uh, Patrick, we just need to put a little bit of context on General Sir Richard Barnes and make the point that he is uh, best buddies with uh, Chris Donnelly of the Institute for Statecraft. Uh, he is therefore pushing forward uh, and he, he works with Chris Donnelly. So he is pushing forward an integrity initiative, anti-Russia, uh, absolutely anti-Russia view. So, however, he has uh, joined the barrage of voices warning about the state of the Russian, of the British armed forces. Sorry. So, yeah, I agree with you 100 percent, Mike. I, I think the purpose of this story is to try to uh, beat the drum for more money, more funding. And what is that really? That's the defense contractor industry lobbying. Um, so this is the military working hand in hand with the press and the defense industry to try to, you know, raise those budgets and get those orders up here. So he's saying that uh, the, it, the Britain would run out of ammo um, in a day. Uh, if they fought uh, Russia. Now, there's some context to this. Um, it, it, it's not all inaccurate. It's true. And it should also just speak to the point of how could the government in Britain be so gung-ho for a war threatening Russia, um, you know, this strident talk um, when they couldn't even, uh, you know, mount uh, mass major combat operations and, and have it last for more than a day. It's kind of ridiculous on its face, but that kind of just speaks to the whole ridiculousness of a lot of NATO member states orientation uh, with regards to this Ukrainian conflict. But look at this. Um, we just go back to uh, 2021. They ran this war game here where the British Army ran out of ammunition in just eight days for a 10-day uh, online simulated war exercise. This was run by uh, a member of the United States, um, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, um, front ran this here. And so we'll look at the uh, the context of that here. And and so that's, Mike, it's, uh, it, it, they don't really have uh, the capability to go to war. And again, we've spoken about this before. What, what capability do they have at the end of the day? It's, you know, special ops, sabotage, false flags, uh, gangs and counter gangs. This is what Britain does really well uh, historically, and it's probably what they're going to continue to do. Um, and all of this conventional war, uh, war beating of the drum is not going to make any difference um, to the conflict as it stands in Ukraine between Russia and the NATO-backed forces in Ukraine and all of our other various and sundry mercenaries and special forces running around in between. Uh, but in the meantime, I mean, I have to say, I've, I've, this this story did the rounds of various media. Uh, this The headline here is Furious Navy Chiefs Order Investigation After Workers on Trident Submarine Glued Broken Bolts in Nuclear Reactor Chamber. Uh, it, it's almost incredible to believe that that has actually happened, but they say that it has. Uh, and if it has, that's a significant breakdown. And well, I mean, this, this seems like a desperate act for, for anybody to do such a thing. Yeah, what, what does it say? It's, it, it, you could translate that, Mike, is they're cutting corners, um, budgets are tight, they don't have the right personnel. Uh, they don't have the level of expertise or competency in key positions like engineering and maintenance. Um, you're talking about the nuclear fleet as well. That's a big ticket item. This is a multi-billion pound item. And so if this isn't going to be looked after uh, in the way that it should be on a base level, what what on earth is Britain doing with a nuclear deterrent anyway? Yeah. That's the obvious question. Yes. 
Uh, okay, now uh, let's just uh, mention AUKUS. Uh, let's bring remind everybody what AUKUS is. This is the partnership between the UK, the United States and Australia. Uh, they signed it uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, the U they signed this, what they described, a landmark defence and security partnership that would defend our shared interests around the world. This is all about reorienting uh, NATO towards the South China Sea, of course. Uh, and uh, part and parcel of, well, we'll come on to what part and parcel of this was in a second, but AUKUS, uh, Boris Johnson said at the time, will preserve security and stability around the world and will generate hundreds of high-skilled jobs as we level up, uh, apparently highly skilled jobs uh, so that we can glue bolts together on nuclear submarines. But anyway, this is the, this is the nuclear submarine technology that we are giving to Australia under this deal, of course. Uh, the Chinese, naturally, at the time, were not terribly excited about it. Uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman at the time saying AUKUS risks severely damaging regional peace and intensifying the arms race. So why are we mentioning it now? Well, because uh, Wednesday, yesterday and today, uh, the AUKMIN the meeting for 2023 is happening. So uh, uh, we had uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Australian Deputy Prime Minister and also the uh, Australian Foreign Minister over visiting uh, the UK. And there uh, is Ben Wallace and uh, James Cleverly greeting them. Uh, they were having a fun time in London on uh, Wednesday talking about all kinds of things. This is a historic opportunity for the three nations with like-minded allies and partners to protect shared values and promote security and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region is what the original statement said. And this follows on for, from it. Uh, but uh, following that meeting in London on uh, uh, Wednesday, they then headed off to uh, uh, to um, Oh, sorry, I apologise, I've forgotten exactly where, where this is. But anyway, they were having a look at, at the various training that was going on, Australian troops training Ukrainian troops uh, alongside UK troops uh, and so on. So um, let's see who all was involved in this. Uh, uh, I've completely lost the plot. But anyway, that was on Thursday. Then today they, uh, they went on to Portsmouth uh, for more meetings and it was all... Very exciting for them. But here's the key point. Uh, the UK was giving the uh, Australia, the UK and the United States giving Australia nuclear uh, submarine, nuclear powered submarine technology. So we've got to remember they're not giving them nuclear weapons. It's just nuclear powered submarine technology. And this was at the time, if you remember, uh, that the French were trying to sell the, uh, the Australians some diesel electric submarines. Uh, and so uh, this didn't go down terribly well with the French. Now, the Australian uh, delegation met with the French uh, before they came to London earlier this week. Uh, and uh, the, the AUKUS was not mentioned. The whole thing was quietly uh, forgotten about and, and uh, brushed under the carpet. But nonetheless, still an issue there with respect to the uh, relationship between Australia and France. Um, but this AUKUS partnership, uh, Patrick, um, as I say, about the reorientation of NATO towards the South China Sea, all about making sure that the war drums start beating in China's direction. Sure, but Mike, Mike, you have to remember, NATO is a defensive organization. It's totally voluntary. I've, you, you make it sound like that this isn't some kind of aggressive um, U.S. and British-led confab that's trying to incite war halfway across the world. You, you should know that it's just a defensive alliance. Uh, well, that's what they claim. But look, uh, sorry, I, I found the, the, the section of text that I wanted to tell everybody about there uh, when they were meeting the uh, the 
uh, Ukrainian trainees on Salisbury Plain. Uh, just because the number of countries involved in training the Ukrainians at the moment, uh, just be interested in your thoughts on this. So it was involving forces, not only uh, Australian troops, but also Canadian, Denmark, uh, Finland, Sweden, Norway, New Zealand, Lithuania and the Netherlands, all taking part in training uh, Ukrainian troops on Salisbury uh, Plain uh, during this meeting. That's uh, quite an international force they're trying to build up. Yeah, it is, Mike. Um, it also reminds me of uh, other training that's uh, gone on in various other conflict zones uh, where they pulled uh, either, you know, militants, extremists, in some case terrorists, and are training them in so NATO countries. Um, and so what this does by, by pooling uh, the countries to get, uh, get everybody involved in this, um, it's like if you're going to rob a bank, um, you want to sort of have uh, five or six people uh, keep people involved in the crime so that everybody will keep quiet um, if, if, if in fact, that crime is later exposed. So this, uh, by, by pooling everybody and get, getting everyone's hands dirty um, in this dirty war that's shaping up to be a dirty war um, in Ukraine, um, then it also that guarantees the silence of other uh, member states so they're not able to speak out politically in an independent way because they're actually involved in some very dirty ops or black ops in this case. Yeah. So that that's one way you can also look at it. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Uh, okay, Vanessa, let's uh, come bring you back on screen and uh, we'll talk about the OPCW because the OPCW uh, this is the, uh, has released its third report on the Duma, the alleged Duma chemical attack in, uh, in Syria. Yeah, I mean, this is just a heads up for people. I'm actually um, doing an interview with the Syrian ambassador to the OPCW in The Hague on Sunday to run through some of the information that has obviously been omitted from uh, this investigation and identification team um, report. Of course, the IIT has been given the mandate by um, the aligned countries or that have led uh, the regime change war in Syria using the chemical uh, weapon canard as their justification for intervention, both political and economic and military, of course, by proxy um, to overthrow uh, the Syrian government and to destabilize the entire country, as I've said previously, occupying uh, Syrian natural resources and destroying civilian infrastructure. Um, now, uh, what is interesting about this IIT report, of course, they've now been given the mandate, which Russia has opposed, to uh, attribute blame. Um, and despite the coming forward of dissident uh, OPCW inspectors who were the first on the ground in Duma and who have proven through their uh, investigative work that it was not a chemical attack, at all, um, and was uh, obviously, in, in that case, not by the Syrian government. The event itself staged by um, the uh, UK-created uh, um, white helmets, uh, the testimony and witness statements were, were doctored, the entire report was basically nobbled yeah. Um, the Western cabal that have been trying to overthrow that Austria Foreign Affairs and Federation. From one thing that I wanted to pick up out of that response, Mike, is the following statement. 
um, referring to the white helmet. If you go right. to the next slide, yeah, Vanessa, I'll, I'll read that because your your connection is just breaking up a little bit here. So the the, the statement says uh, white helmets brought the corpses of the alleged chemical weapons attack victims mentioned in the IIT report uh, in advance from nearby territories. They had gunshot wounds and mine blast injuries while lacking any signs of exposure to chlorine. Um, well, this is this is a new development, actually. This hasn't been mentioned at all previously. And we have to assume this is based on the, the possible exhumation of the actual victims of this staged event. Um, and this is one of the questions that I'll be raising on Sunday as to whether the Syrian government has any details to hand of this, because this this is quite a major development. This this um, sheds again um, the white helmet staging of this event uh, in a in a very poor light. Of course, Riam Delati, uh, a BBC producer, has even publicly stated that the hospital scenes were staged. Now, if the hospital scenes were staged, then the latest scenes presumably were also staged. So what's happening now, I mean, the, the release of the IIT report now is interesting timing, of course, as the West is ramping up its rhetoric uh, against Russia in Ukraine. Um, there could be a number of reasons for this. It could be that they don't want attention brought to the IIT report because they know that it's on very shaky ground. It could also be that they want to increase the pressure on Russia by including Russia in the attribution of, of chemical weapon use. It could also be, of course, again, protectionism because France, the UK and the US were responsible for unlawful aggression against Damascus, against Syria, um, before the OPCW inspectors had even been able to, um, to enter the area where the event was alleged to have happened. So there's many kind of strings and, and, and you know, connections going on here. Um, but the bottom line is the IIT um, has continued to shore up the OPCW narrative and to provide of US. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. Okay, uh, Patrick, we're a bit short of time, so, so we'll, we'll run through this. Uh, we're beginning with the, with the lovely Greta. Yeah, this is the the emaciated Greta, as you can see. She's looking there with the mask under her chin. Uh, but it has to do with the cold snap uh, right now, uh, power outages in America. And, of course, Greta can't very happy about that, especially because of the wind energy's role in that here. But So Texas has been hit again, uh, Mike, uh, as we reported uh, two winters ago. You remember that big power outage? that uh, uh, hit Texas in a big way. Um, so they're having rolling blackouts now in Texas. There's a lot of different reasons for it. Um, but I think the important point to point out here um, is that green energy is not helping to fortify the grid at all. In fact, just the opposite energy policy continues to gnaw away um, at the capacity of the grid here. And this is an interesting part I just wanted to pull out here, and I think this is also relevant to the UK, and it says, uh, after running out of wood to burn during that freeze, uh, Winona Cave, she's talking about the 2021 freeze, a 47-year-old um, in Finn, Texas, started stockpiling wood in anticipation of another winter storm. She said her current stash stood 15 feet uh, long and five feet high. 
And so isn't this interesting, Mike, that, you know, with all of the investment in green energy, um, with all of the subsidized um, uh, money that's going towards all these things that people still need as a backstop, um, they still need to go source and, and collect and store wood and have a wood stove. So we, we saw uh, efforts by governments, remember in the UK a couple of years ago, Mike, um, it, all the rage was, oh, burning wood, wood stoves are going to have to go. We're going to have to make them illegal. And, and that all pressure that is still there. They're still pushing that as hard as they possibly can at the moment. Yes. So this is a good example. Of, people need wood stoves as a, as a backup, and they need wood stock to get them through what could potentially be a disaster if you get a major cold snap here. Um, so this is what's happening in some parts of the U.S., um, and so, but what, look at the, the, the grid problem, Mike, is, is basically fundamental. And again, this is, this is a couple of weeks old, but they basically foresaw this problem here. This is the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, but interesting detail as the temperature fell and demand soared, they're talking about the previous blackouts, um, at 10,000 megawatts of thermal power plant capacity and 6,000 megawatts of renewable generating capacity was offline due to these conditions. So, um, the, the problem that they flagged up here, Mike, which I think is important, once in a while you get some interesting factoids from people like the Federal Reserve, um, is that you can't attack whole sections of the energy portfolio, i.e. natural gas, and, and expect that the industry is going to have surpluses on hand, expect that the infrastructure is going to be able to cope with massive pressure here. And here's the point, and they put this in, in the, also in this article. Additionally, um, uh, Texas natural gas production is estimated to have fallen by almost 20% in December, according to Bloomberg, uh, their new energy finance um, a section, Mike. So we have a potential systemic problem that's going to roll over from one year to the next. And I just brought in this footage here um, from uh, East, East Midlands uh, here. That's a major uh, coal plant there, um, East Midlands Parkway near Derby. That's British coal right there. And it's burning full steam, Mike, full steam ahead. So again, Britain's having to turn to coal to provide the base loan, the base load for its energy grid in parts of the country. And uh, I, I dare say uh, Greta is much, much unhappy about that and will continue to be. But Mike, it's just a question of common sense and practicalities. And it's not in th this power plant here and burning cleaner than ever before, by the way, these coal plants, it's not going to change the weather of the planet. Mm. It's not going to cause the oceans to boil, as Al Gore claimed at Davos two weeks ago. Indeed, indeed. Right. Well, look, uh, let's end the program then uh, just with this. I just want to bring uh, a couple of uh, articles here about 15 minute cities up. So this is the yellow advi uh, uh, advertiser. Uh, South End considers 15-minute scheme uh, is the headline. Now, who's written this? Well, it is Christine Sexton, who's a local democracy reporter. So I want to just uh, mention in passing, remind everybody what a local democracy reporter is, because, of course, this is someone who is, in fact, employed by the BBC uh, and uh, they run their local democracy reporting service. So when you see a local uh, report written by a local democracy reporter, it's actually a BBC report. But anyway... Uh, let's go on here. She said, uh, South End could be divided into eight neighborhoods where residents will be able to live, work and play in a 15 minute radius of their home. Uh, this week, it was announced 100 councils across the country had signed up to become 15 minute cities where residents have 
every facility within a 15-minute walk, cycle, or public transport ride. So uh, more and more uh, organizations or more and more uh, councils signing up to this notion of 15-minute city. Uh, here we've got the Eastern Daily Press, 20-minute neighborhoods. Now, of course, they're calling it a 20-minute neighborhood because everybody's searching for 15-minute neighborhoods or cities. So let's just, uh, you know, extra five minutes. That's excellent. Uh, could be trialed in Norfolk. So we're getting all these kinds of things uh, building around the 15-minute city situation. Uh, but on the positive side, there's more. there are more and more people uh, starting to push back against it. Uh, so here's uh, Colchester, uh, and uh, this is a council meeting discussing 15-minute cities and people quietly making sure that the uh, local council understands how they feel about it. So I'm really pleased to see people actually attending the council meeting and uh, uh, making their feelings known in Colchester. That's fantastic. And another one here from Birmingham Live. More than 30,000 motorists a month refusing to play to, to pay the clean air zone fines. Uh, so if we look at what th this article is saying, more than 30,000 drivers a month are refusing to pay for misusing Birmingham's controversial clean air zone straight away. Of drivers issued fines during November 2022, a huge 63% had not paid up by the start of January. Uh, the City Council has been overwhelmed by the number of motorists failing to comply with the uh, clean air zone rules since its launch in 2021. More than 50,000 drivers are still being penalized every month for collecting and collecting all the cash owed has proved impossible. And that's the key point. When people stand together, Patrick, uh, uh, the councils really and the government can really do nothing about it because uh, it becomes too expensive to collect all that money. Mike, Mike, just one question for you, maybe for the viewers in the chat box. At the national level, where's the conservative government on these um, sort of neo-Marxist uh, collectivist policies from the WEF? Where's the conservative government? Has anybody said anything? Has Rishi Sunak come out and, and sort of, you know, decried this crazy policy? I, I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anyone address that. And I'm going to say the real conservative movement in Britain is the freedom movement. And so, you know, just a little food for thought. Yes, and on that thought, we will end for today. So thank you very much to Patrick and to Vanessa. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, for, for some extra if you're a UK call member. Uh, and uh, otherwise, we will see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. I hope everyone has a great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.